The Copywriter Club podcast is sponsored by AirStory, the writing platform for professional writers who want to get more done in half the time. Learn more at airstory.co forward slash club. What if you could hang out with seriously talented copywriters and other experts, ask them about their successes and failures, their work processes and their habits, then steal an idea or two to inspire your own work? That's what Kira and I do every week at the Copywriter Club podcast. You're invited to join the club for episode 63 as we chat with psychological researcher, strategic planner, and copywriter Margot Aaron about changing the world and making a profit, what copywriters absolutely must know about psychology, what it's like to hang out with Seth Godin in his alt-MBA program, and how to learn the stuff that isn't written down. Welcome. Thanks, you guys. Happy to be here. It's great to have you here. We are so excited. Yeah, I secretly want to be friends with you. So by the end of this, we need to be friends. I'm in. I'm in. <laughs> when, when are we getting coffee or tequila? Either. <laughs> <laughs> Margo, you came to our attention because somebody posted your website in the Copywriter Club Facebook group. And immediately there were like 40 comments about how great your website was. And literally within a couple minutes, people were saying, We've got to have Margo on the podcast. We've got to have Margo on the podcast. So we reached out and made it happen. Tell us how you got to the point where everybody wants to know about you. Where did you come from? <laughs> Honestly, when you find that out, let me know. I have you all to see. <laughs> the short version is I sort of fell into marketing and copywriting by accident. I started my career, as you said, as a psychological researcher. I was working in a lab for depression and anxiety patients. And you guys, had I known then what I know now, the amount of people we could have helped, you can't even imagine. I didn't know it at the time, but it was kind of my first introduction to funnels because I was the person on the phone. Like I was in charge of what's called recruitment and screening. So it's effectively tofu and mofu. Like I have to get people in the door and then I had to qualify them for different studies. And around that time, I realized how there was this huge disconnect between what we know and what we do. And I was frustrated with how limited our exposure was as a clinic. Like we weren't really able to help people the way I wanted to be able to help people. And I was really, really obsessed with this question of how do you get people to care? And I went to graduate school. And in the middle of graduate school, I realized that the academic life really wasn't for me. <laughs> and I got introduced to this world of online business, which I'd never heard about before. And in fact, would have been very embarrassing for an academic to even associate themselves with. But I was fascinated by how effective it was. And you guys know as copywriters, I mean, it's effectively just psychology. And so I sort of went down this dark hole of learning about direct response copywriting. And uh, a mentor at the time told me that I had skills in what is called market research, and I'd never heard of it before. And so I took a job as a market researcher, ended up working in-house in a marketing agency for a few years before jumping off to start my own consultancy. And the rest is history. <laughs> That's a great history. I love like the psychological background, which is so critical for everything that certainly in the direct response, you know, copywriting area, but even in content creation, just knowing and understanding how clients react, it feels like every copywriter could benefit from a course or even a degree in psychology at some point. 
Absolutely. I worry about telling people to learn psychology because I think a lot of it is ingrained in who you are and how you interact with the world. Like the more you learn to pay attention to the people around you, what they are not saying is arguably a more important skill than learning the science. I know a lot of copywriters who tend to be perfectionists. We get obsessed with funnels. We get obsessed with systems and optimization and automation. And we forget about the human being that's on the other side of our copy. And I think that's the piece that's most powerful. And when you say psychology, a lot of people go to the academic version of it, the testing and the studies and the rules. And I think for copy especially, the more important piece is recognizing that there's a human who's driven by emotion behind the scenes. And tapping into that, which you can do when, I mean, if you guys are are married, Rob, you said you have a kid, like you're using that psychology every single day as you negotiate, you know, how to get them to eat vegetables or why they shouldn't come home late. All of that is using the same kind of persuasion techniques and psychology that you would use in, say, a sales letter. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm really intrigued with this idea of the things that people aren't saying. I mean, in addition to sort of just the life skills of psychology, what do you mean by that? So this is something I learned in the clinic and funny enough from my father. So in the clinic, one of the things we had to assess for was demeanor. And so you would listen to people's faces. So some of this is body language, but some of this is also learning how to hear rationalizations and learning how to hear social norms and learning how to hear when people aren't just lying to you, but lying to themselves. So when I say listening to what people don't say, it's kind of like asking someone, what did you think of my essay? And if I'm your friend, I might say, oh, it was great. You did great. (laughs) And what you're listening for is their tone, the context of which they said it. Did you ask the question in a way that actually lend itself to an answer? Because what you're really hearing when you say it was great is I don't want to fight with you. That's the actual answer. Yeah. Because a real compliment sounds different. A real compliment sounds like, wow, this argument you made in paragraph seven was really strong because what you said about trees and snails really compelled and changed my view on this, this, and this. That's a real compliment. Someone saying, wow, it was great. I liked it. That's your friend trying not to hurt your feelings. This sounds like every conversation with a client. Yes. You know, oh yeah, I like your copy, you know, or yeah, the copy is great. Or even worse, I don't like it. You know, it's not right, you know, without that in-depth feedback. Oh, yeah. I always tell future freelancers and consultants to never ask a client what they like, because what they like is irrelevant. It's did it work? Is this effective? Did we achieve our objective? Because if you start asking if someone likes, you're going to get 25,000 opinions and they're not qualified to give them to you. You're the expert. So how does this come into play as copywriters? How can we use this? Is it just getting, you know, as we're interviewing customers and doing research? Is it getting people on video calls so that we can kind of read their face? How can we use this to our advantage? That's a great question. Developing the skill of listening takes time. I think it starts with, this is going to sound silly, but it starts with actually shutting up. So oftentimes when we sit down, I certainly am guilty of this. When I first sat down with clients, I would ask them maybe one or two questions, and then I'd verbal vomit all over them about why I could solve all their problems. And I never closed any sales (laughs) that way. And it wasn't until I learned how to ask questions and really listen and just get comfortable with the silence and get comfortable with letting them talk without necessarily expressing my views 
or having known what I think that starts to develop that muscle of being able to listen well. That's step one is sort of silencing your inner voice and stop thinking about like, how am I going to respond? And it doesn't have to just be in a client interaction. If you want to practice the skill, like you can do it with drinks with your girlfriends you know, like when you're sitting down and your friend is telling you a story, a lot of us are thinking, oh, I have this piece of advice. I want to give it to her right now, instead of actually listening to the person and being fully present with what they're saying. That's one way to start with it. And then the next is what I call rigorous self-honesty. So this piece is a little harder to measure, but generally, you know when you're lying to yourself. And when you're talking with clients, if you're hearing what you want to hear versus what's actually happening, you're going to have a really big problem in the future. And so it's the skill of being able to identify what someone is telling you versus what you want to hear and knowing the difference, which requires you to be honest with yourself and really self-aware. It feels like that's related to sort of that voice inside your head when you're talking to a client and you sort of feel like something's maybe off. Yes. But you're still, you know, you're willing to go ahead with the project because you're thinking, well, I can make this work or I, you know, I know how to solve this problem. But you sort of have that niggling in the back of your head. It's like, this isn't going to go right eventually. You're going to regret this down the road. And we tend to ignore that a lot. Yes, that is a great example. So right, we've all had that client that you've worked really well together for five months. And all of a sudden, at the end, they hate everything and they rewrite all your copy. And that can be avoided if you have the correct listening skills and can hear when they're fake telling you yes. So I'll give you an example. I've done this with design. So I'm miserable at design. Words are my drug of choice. And when I hired my first web designer, I was probably the world's worst client. But I was so afraid of hurting her feelings, I told her that I liked everything. And then I would attack her work later. I didn't even know I was doing it. Like, as I say it right now, I sound like such an ass. But I realized later that had she just paused and said, Margo, you don't actually sound happy. Right. What is going on? You seem very fake. Or this doesn't seem like a genuine compliment. Or something feels off. Why don't you tell me what you don't like about this? Or what isn't resonating? It would have been a much more amicable relationship at the end. And we both would have ended up happier. Interesting. I've done the same thing before where I worked with many designers. I feel like I'm quite picky and but I don't want to hurt people's feelings. So I've held back. And now I'm at the point where I've just realized I cannot do that because you're right. It just, it never ends up well, right? You're not happy with the final product or you want to get a refund. It just, so you have to do it along, along the way. Absolutely. And knowing the difference between like what is them being fake and condescending versus insecurity? So something I notice with a lot of my clients is there's something about marketing that makes smart people feel stupid. And it's one of those things that we feel like we're supposed to know, but we don't. And one of the things that really helped me was I would give my clients the benefit of the doubt. And I'd say, listen, I'm sure you know all this, but just so we're clear, I'll tell you my definition of what a brand is or the difference between branding, marketing, and advertising, or like the difference between ad copy for sales and like creative campaign copy. And just give them a baseline so they weren't embarrassed because a lot of the conflicts you'd have later on, you discover is simply semantics or a fundamental misunderstanding of what they hired you for. No, that makes sense. So Margo, I want to pivot a bit because I want to hear more about what your business looks like today and kind of dig into that. So where are you spending most of your time? How are you helping clients today? Sure. I actually stopped working with clients in February. Oh, interesting. Tell us about that. It was, yeah, I built a company I hated. (laughs) 
Let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. (laughs) You know, I escaped the nine to five, like everyone talks about probably in 2012. I was so excited to build a consulting firm and was working with clients that I adored. And I realized probably two years in that it was taking everything out of me. And I had made some critical mistakes. Number one, I didn't niche well. I had managed to successfully get a lot of word of mouth. So I didn't even have a website, you guys. Like for the first two or three years of my business, I didn't have a website. And I had a colleague who told me that it was embarrassing and sketchy and that she wasn't going to send me (laughs) anyone else. (laughs) But I had had enough business that it didn't matter. But the problem was because I kept getting referred business, it was always for the most random stuff because former clients would say, oh, Margot can really help you with that. And they would send over someone and someone would say, hey, Margot, I'm really struggling with getting leads for my this studio. And they'd say, can you help me? And you know, I'd look at them and be like, probably, I have no idea, but let's figure it out. And I would jump in. And so I had a lot of diverse experience in that way, but it didn't allow me to really specialize in a particular skill. And I think that's a huge mistake. It made me a lot of money, but it also drove me crazy and was very confusing when anyone said, like, what do you do? I had no idea how to answer that question. I was trained as a strategist and a strategic planner. So that was my skill set. But you can't sell strategy. I'm sure anyone on this call knows like you can't sell research, you can't sell strategy. So it's sort of a sell them what they want, give them what they need. I was doing a lot of that. So anyway, I'm uh, several years in and I'm realizing that the majority of the work that I was doing was client management. And even the clients that I adored, they either had a fundamental misunderstanding of how marketing worked or didn't have the budget or there was always a million reasons why something amazing didn't get executed. And I was several years into my business when I looked at my metrics and realized I didn't have any good case studies of my skills. And I was really embarrassed. Like it made me feel a lot of imposter syndrome, even though people were referring me business and my clients had nothing but amazing things to say about me. And this kind of contrast was really conflicted me inside because I felt like I wasn't a real marketer because I wasn't seeing the results that I wanted to see in terms of sales, even though they were happy. I also didn't feel like I got to do any real marketing. Like I was doing a lot of, you know, this CMO is fighting with the CEO and now the director of marketing isn't responsive to this. And then this designer's mad and now we need to go in and fix that. And I remember I was visiting my sister and she was listening in when I had a few conference calls. And afterwards she goes, so Margot, is what you do for a living like crisis management? Like you manage people's emotions? Yes. And I was like, oh my God, this is mortifying. Like, right. <laughs> and that, and so that's, that's the big irony is that I was making a lot of money at the skill of client management and I wasn't getting to do any actual marketing and I missed it. And as a writer, to be honest with you guys, I don't think I did nearly as much copywriting as I was selling. Because you ended up getting pulled into all these other things that either it was in the best interest of the client to focus on something else, or it never got executed, or, you know, insert million reasons here. And I missed it. Like my soul missed it. And that's when I put up my website, that seems important.com. I was like, screw this. Like I just miss writing and I just want to write. And I actually did everything wrong. And I didn't tell anyone that it was up for a while because I knew according to, you know, direct response doctrine, I wasn't going to follow any of the rules because I just wanted to play. I wanted permission to play. I don't know if you guys have experienced this, but I feel sometimes with the copy world, there's a lot of rules and I can get really obsessed with following the rules instead of just writing in my voice, especially when you're doing ghostwriting for other people. 
And so I wanted to give myself permission to just have fun, like create an opt-in that doesn't make any sense or write about random topics and maybe not have a focus just for a little bit. I now have much more focus and have gotten to know my list a lot better and actually given it some form, but I needed that reconnection to the craft to reignite my interest in all of this. So this is a long-winded way of telling you why I shut down the company. (laughs) So, So around the tipping point was I was offered a pretty large contract and it was just under six figures and there was not a bone in my body that wanted it. And I had a long conversation with my husband and I said, I don't want this life. If I don't do this now, I'm going to create a company and a business that I can't leave because I'll have golden handcuffs. And I believe there's something called product founder fit that we don't talk about enough, which is similar to product market fit, except it has to do with you and the business you can run versus the business you should run. And for me, like I know that I can't run a VC-backed company. That's not something I'm interested in. And I don't think I would be good at it. So there'd be no good product founder fit there. With a consulting firm, it was really difficult because I was good at it, but it was killing my soul. (laughs) Okay. I have lots of questions for you. Yes, hit me. So you mentioned you were giving all of yourself. Mm. So can you just talk a little bit more about what that looked like? And because I think that happens to a lot of us and maybe it's an indication that we need to change something and it may not mean shutting down the business, but it may mean pivoting. Yes. So... I find that there are activities that are difficult that light me up and activities that are difficult that drain me. And knowing the difference between the two of those has been sort of a lifelong battle. But if I'm sitting, like I wrote a piece called Honest Selling Secrets for a Dishonest Man for HubSpot. And it took me probably 40 hours to put together. It was hard, but I loved every second of it. And where my friends were like, going out and having brunch and doing all these things. Like all I wanted to do was write this piece. And I was so excited about it. And that is the type of activity that you want to look for from the work that actually lights you up and can be profitable. What I mean by I put everything into it and it was draining me is things like instead of spending my time in my strengths, like writing, I was spending time constantly in meetings. I mean, I was a professional meeting attender keeping clients happy, really, really having ethical dilemmas between doing good work and what the clients wanted and trying to... I mean, mean, you guys, this is a a side tangent to answering your question, Kira, but many times... I did not mean this as a sales tactic, but it worked. Many times I would sit down with a prospect and say, I actually don't think you should do this. Here are all the reasons why. And if you want to, here's people I recommend you move forward with. And they would turn around and say, that's why we want to hire you. You have so much integrity. So we're going to hire you to do this thing. (laughs) And it would be so disorienting for me to know what to do with that because I'm getting paid to do something that I don't fundamentally agree with. And it was never something that was lying or deceptive. It was like throwing a bunch of cash in a direction for market research that I thought was unnecessary, you know, things like that. So anyway, so things like that were very, very draining and taking up a lot of my time. You know, there's when you're a writer, you need long stretches of uninterrupted time to do good work. And with consulting, I found that there was a lot of tasks switching. Part of it was my fault. I didn't do a good job of establishing boundaries up front, but also I felt a tremendous amount of guilt and obligation to people who were paying me good money to execute for them. And I wanted to be available. So if they had something, I made myself available. No matter how much I told myself, I you know don't take calls after five. It wasn't true. I saw the call come in and I wanted to take it. 
So it was difficult to establish those boundaries. And, and it was exhausting. The hours were exhausting. The dealing with different temperaments was exhausting. Dance around how to create proposals. I mean, I would create 20 page proposals sometimes. Oh. And that in and of itself would take me a, a really long time because I customize them for people. So it just took a lot out of me. Interesting, Margo. You're the second person in a row we've talked to who built an agency or consultancy and then hated it and shut it down so they could focus more on the things that they love. So tell us what you're doing today now that you're not working with all those bad clients. <laughs> How are you spending your time? In fairness, they weren't bad clients. This is just not a good thing. <laughs> so I spend most of my time writing now for my site. And I'm also a contributor on Inc. I write a column called Advanced Basics on marketing and entrepreneurship. But I run a virtual co-working space for solopreneurs with online businesses and virtual companies. So we connect people who don't have access to places like New York or San Francisco and connect them with other like-minded people. I'm, I'm actually really glad you brought that up because when I was on that page, the headline on this page is what you need to learn isn't written down. And I am really intrigued by this idea you know, that so much of what we do or so much of what we need to know isn't in a book and it's not in a course. It's somewhere else. Mm -hmm. How in the heck do we find that? Yes. Oh, Rob, now you're into my marketing philosophy. So originally, I wanted to sell courses on marketing. And I was sure I was going to change the world because, like I said, I started in academia and I was like, if, if I can just give good people, good companies and nonprofits, the tools of direct response, then like everything's going to be fixed. And what I discovered was these tools are out there. And for most people, you know what to do, but you're not doing it. And that was certainly true with the people on my email list. And that was certainly true with the peers in my space. And most, especially with copywriters, but also I would say a lot of entrepreneurs and freelancers, we get really, really, really stuck in perfectionism. And we're a addicted to courses. I mean, everyone is taking courses. And I think that's because we are seeking certainty. I mean, if, if you guys are anything like me, like I was an A student, I was an overachiever, I was kind of crazy. And the thing that really humbles you about entrepreneurship is it's actually a process of unlearning that needs to happen, not actually learning. So there's a huge gap between what we know how to do and actually doing it. So Copy is a perfect example of you can master so many of the direct response rules, but until you have a sales page that's live, you have no idea what works and doesn't. Yeah. And the skill that I think is even more important is developing the thick skin to execute something that's not perfect and figure out why it did or didn't work. So Rob, you'll enjoy this. The first version of that sales page, I challenged myself because I was like, you know what? You're stuck in perfectionism. You know this can help people. Just test it. So I put up a Google Doc, I kid you not, sales page. I love that. I love that idea. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, I'm going to test this. Unfortunately, I wasn't tracking as, as a result. So I don't know if my conversion rates could have been way better. But I did a Google Doc sales page and I sent it to part of my list and then emailed a, a few people in my network. And that's actually how I got my first, I think about 20 people into the space. And here's, here's the secret. No one cared. Like to the people who had the problem I could solve, they just wanted their problem solved. To everyone else, 
it was like, what, who is this amateur person who like can't even spend money on lead pages? Like what's wrong with them? And as a marketer, I had a lot of shame too, right? Like you don't want people to see when you know the rules, it's really hard to execute when you know them and you know, you're not doing them right. I mean, it, it definitely kept me from showing anyone in marketing my website for a long time. Cause I was like, I don't want feedback from them that like my opt-in CTA is bad. Like I know it's bad. <laughs> I just needed to be able to play again. Anyway, to your question on like what you need to know isn't written down. I mean, my philosophy and what I try and preach from the top of my lungs in our virtual co-working space is you have to do and you have to fail. And from that experience comes the learning. So a lot of these lessons in direct response, you can actually figure out when you do a launch and you forget to put scarcity into it. Like you'll figure out that you need scarcity. Right. Right? Like you don't have to read a million books to, to discover that. And, and I think we've really limited or because we've done such a good job of marketing so many of these courses and selling certainty, we've scared ourselves out of just trusting our intuition, which often can be wrong. And that's the beauty of it. Like you need that wrong intuition. You need to jump in head first and do something horrible and botched and really mortifying, you know, like sending your first email where you write, hi, first name, you know, like you need that experience and you'll never, ever make that mistake again. Right. And I know that was an empathy laugh. <laughs> yeah, no, it was totally an empathy laugh. I, I remember almost being fired from a job for doing that exact thing. Yeah, of course. So yeah, that's, and that's the direction I want to move us all in. You know, I think we get so obsessed with studying for the test and getting everything right and getting it perfect. And, you know, being behind the scenes of so many businesses while I was consulting, I saw how much money was being made from people who did things wrong. I don't mean ethically wrong. I mean, like they didn't understand marketing and they weren't doing things according to the systems and optimizations, all the books I'd read. And I was fascinated by this. I was like, I don't understand. This isn't supposed to work. Why are you selling things? And it's because at a certain point, if you have a problem that needs to be solved, people are going to find you if you have the solution. Um, that's stronger. Everything else is sort of an amplification tool for that. And you have to be able to trust yourself and your own founder's intuition and yourself as a, as a copywriter and also as just a human and be able to navigate that and jump right in. That's why I call it the arena. I don't let in entrepreneurs or people with side hustles, even though maybe if I get enough interest from side hustlers, I might. But I, I want people who are, who are in the arena getting their ass kicked, falling on their face and needing to get back up. It's funny. I feel like I, I feel like I really learned how the principles of direct response when we started marketing our programs under the copywriter club. Even though I had worked on several big launches for my clients, that's by doing it yeah. for ourselves. That's when I really learned, oh, this is why we do it this way. And this is how you can improve it. Yes. So when copywriters are listening to this and they're like, cool, Margo, like I need to do, not take a course. Where do they start? Is it a matter of creating something for their own business, a product, and then selling that just to learn that way versus finding a mentor to learn copy from? Yeah, yeah. With copy, it's also complicated because it's really a skill and there is merit to honing your skill. I don't want to minimize that. That is very important. But I do think that a lot of us sit on prospecting calls or like we avoid doing the things that are uncomfortable when really like, 
get on a prospect call. And if you don't know what your packages are, make some up, you know, like don't be afraid of creating your own solution. And I think what I see in a lot of copywriters is they're like, well, I don't understand how royalties work. So I can't do anything. And I need to spend six hours on the computer understanding rev share, you know, and like, no, you don't like, like pitch what you think works, ask some questions, you know, figure it out as you go, but don't let the fact that you don't know be an excuse for inaction. Oh, that's, that's powerful. I love that. We'll just, we'll just <laughs> sit with that for a second. Yeah, I'm sitting here thinking there are like 10 quotables that we could pull from the episode, you know, to use as headlines. I mean, it, there's like, there's so many good kernels of advice. And I'm just sitting here thinking, okay, yeah, I need to do that. I, like, for instance, the idea of trying stuff, you know, if, if you're always following the formula, you never get past the formula, right? You never figure out that if something else, you try something else, that might work even better. You never know because you're plugging in, you know, yes. I'm going to hit all of the objections and then next I'm going to hit them with my guarantee and then next I'm going to hit them with scarcity and then, you know, I'm going to hit them again with the purchase button and we just never know, you know, what could actually work better than what we've been used to trying. Exactly. And I think we've also gotten really scared. I mean, maybe I'll speak for myself, but I got really scared of breaking the rules. Like as if something really bad was going to happen. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and it's just not true. I was actually really inspired by a friend of mine who's in the virtual co-working space. Her name is Talia. And she, she just plays. So she created a company called Workweek Lunch. And against medical advice, right, went, uh, not medical, but decided that she was going to build an Instagram community instead of just an email list, which like, God forbid, right? Like never build your community on social, always build it on email. What are you stupid? And she was like, well, I'm getting traction here. So I'm going to play with it. And I was, first of all, I just thought that was really ballsy. And then she slowly over a year got 10,000 followers, figured out Instagram, and then grew her following within four months from 10 to 70,000 people. Wow. I know. What? All you guys from playing, like she didn't buy followers. She didn't get bots. Like she just played and she would update us on what she did. And now what's even cooler is she and I are currently like debating this, but she's totally winning. She has a launch going on and she's showing us the numbers of like email versus Instagram and she's selling more on Instagram. Wow. And everyone is like blown away because we're like, this isn't supposed to happen. You broke all the rules. What do you mean? You can't sell on Instagram. Like everybody knows that that's not the rule. You have to do a proper Jeff Walker launch. What's wrong with you? And she was just like, meh, I'm going to try it. And so there's, you know, that, that playfulness that like, I'm going to try it. That just like, she wasn't scared. She was just like, why not? Like what could go wrong? Like worst case scenario, I sell nothing. Okay. Like it's not that big a deal. And yet it feels like such a big deal. Like you can even hear in my voice. I feel anxious just thinking about it right now. I'm like, what do you mean? What do you mean sell on Instagram? You can't do that. You need to have your sequence ready to go and you got to have all your webinars ready. And did you optimize all your landing pages? Like what's wrong with you? And she's like, meh, I'm going to use Unbounce, going to stick something up there. We'll see. I'll play with, you know, A-B test the headline and call it a day. You know, <laughs> so. Love that philosophy. It's yeah, I love that. So, Margo, I want to I want to ask you because we were speaking about other copywriters before, and you know you've observed the space, like you see what's happening, you've had experience in it. What else are copywriters doing today that drives you insane? Oh, that's such a good question. Oh, <laughs> so this isn't as relevant to your community because I I really like your community, but I would say a lot of the other copy communities I'm in, there's a lot of lying and deception, and. 
I think there's a really big difference between manipulation and deception. So manipulation is when you amend some aspect of copy or context in order to influence an action. And like, I manipulate my husband to get him to say yes to come to my, you know, sister's events, right? Like that's a manipulation. Is it good or bad? That's up for debate, right? It's mostly neutral. And I would say like, if your dentist, like using manipulation, like if he's using scarcity, for example, by putting a deadline saying like, if you don't come in in the next two weeks, then you can't have your monthly or your, your yearly cleanup. You know, that's actually like a very positive use of manipulation and scarcity. Right. But <laughs> deception is lying and it's specific to claims. It's when you make claims that aren't true. And as copywriters, I think that we have a moral obligation to not work with clients where we know they're pushing the limits. Like, you're not going to make a million dollars in a weekend. You're not going to lose 60 pounds in four days. Like, there are claims that you know are not true. Or if you know that the testimonials like only came from four people who didn't actually pay for the products. You know, I think there's all these areas that like, they're not ethically gray. <laughs> like, they're just not right. And so that I have a problem with in this space. We see a lot of that. So you had an awesome experience, I believe, with Seth Godin and the Alt-MBA. And this is something that I think I've looked at and thought, ah, I'd love to do that. And I, I know Kira's done the same thing. And I'm guessing probably half of our listeners, if not more, tell us about that experience, what it was, what you guys did. And, yeah. and Seth, tell us about Seth. You know, we're all oh. a little bit of a fanboy when it comes to Seth. Yeah, I have such a crush on Seth. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, he's not really involved in the program, just like a true, I think he was the one who said the difference between an entrepreneur and a freelancer. I think he has a post on that. So this one, he definitely treats as an entrepreneur where he's kind of outsourced it to everyone else, but he dips in and out. So like, and it's all his philosophy. So he's definitely present. The, oh, the Alt MBA. So I'll tell you, my expectations going in were that it was going to be a lot more academic and rigorous than it actually was. And what surprised me the most was it was skills-based, not so much like teaching me how to read a PNL, right? Which he kind of tells you, but for some reason in my head, I wasn't totally expecting it. And the beauty of the Alt-MBA, oh, guys, it's hard to talk about because you can't share that much without giving like the good stuff away. So yeah, yeah, you like have to be in it. Can, wait, can you give us, can you give us the, yeah. okay, right. I'm like, yeah, well, so I'll tell you just enough. So the lessons are meta lessons. So okay. a lot of what they build into the program is stuff that I immediately was able to implement. So you learn where I thought I would learn, again, like how to read a PNL. It was more like how to make decisions based on incomplete information or like evaluating the actual power structure of a hierarchical, what do you call it, way people work in a company. Like who actually has the decision-making power and evaluating those things. So like he did introduce you to concepts and force you to ship so often that you basically got desensitized to perfectionism. So for me, like the, the Alt-MBA was way more effective in untraining me than training me. So it got me into the habit of shipping fairly regularly, shipping publicly, being comfortable with something being wrong or not perfect and getting feedback. So this part I think I can share. So you get a series of assignments that are dripped out to you every couple of days. And you basically have 48 hours to finish them with a group. And you spend an inordinate amount of time trying to understand what the assignment even is. And oftentimes the lesson is in trying to figure it out. So then after you submit it, 
then the harder part starts, which is you are required to evaluate other people's submissions. And this is the part that's interesting and I think really, really relevant to copy in that they distinguish and train you on the difference between praise and feedback. And by the end, you know how to give feedback. And that is the most valuable piece. And it's definitely made me better as a business owner, as a friend, as a writer. You know how to separate. Because like our ego, I mean, I love praise. Like who doesn't love praise? But you also want some feedback. Feedback can be positive. It's mostly neutral, right? It's mostly can be like this piece can be stronger. That's helpful feedback versus praise that can often dismiss some things that not actually let you get better. So for someone who's listening and is interested or has been interested for a while, what would you say as far as, you know, how do we know if it's a good fit for us and where we are in our career as copywriters? Would you recommend it at a certain stage and as we grow our business? Oh, that's a great question. You know, I think if you have a lot of business right now and you are working like a well-oiled machine or maybe you're overwhelmed, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it yet because it's a lot of time. If you're going through a lull or you're starting out, I would recommend it. Or if you're already a well-oiled machine and you have some time, I would recommend it as well. I think if you, this is one of those programs that you'll get out what you put in. And if you aren't able to put I would say 20 hours a weekend, you're, you're going to have a hard time. Like, I don't know how you did it with clients. It's difficult. It's a lot of work, but it's worth it. And I'll tell you why. If you are a copywriter, you're in the client management world, period. You're selling products, but you still have, you make a bulk of your money in dealing with people. And a lot of what the training is in Alt MBA is how to navigate that changing landscape and understand how you work and figuring out how to work more efficiently and also recognizing your limits and even getting evidence for how much you actually can get out of something. Like I had no idea. I thought I was working insane hours. Alt MBA showed me I wasn't even working hard enough at all. Like I could hustle so much more. I was shocked. Mm. I really was shocked. You don't really have a choice. You have to get it in by midnight. And if you don't get in by midnight, like nothing happens. Whereas with copy, I'll speak for myself. I don't know about you guys, but like often I'd be like, all right, I had four to six solid hours of writing today. That's like an amazing day. Now I have to take my mind off and do other things. Cause like really that's, you can't write that well for much longer than that. Right. But in Alt MBA, it was like too bad, like too bad. You have this due. So you have to ship, figure it out, which is much more real life. I'm not even sure I want to learn that lesson. Right. Yeah. That's a hard lesson to learn. (laughs) It's mortifying, but it's worth it. I want to change a direction just a little bit again. So you mentioned earlier that, you know, you write for your own list and you have a really interesting newsletter that is actually the kind of thing that people actually want to read. And so I'm intrigued by the idea of creating something that's unique for your list. How do you do that? How do you engage your readers? How do you provide something that's different? And, you know, again, that people are excited to see it show up in the email box instead of all of the other stuff that's out there. Yes. Rob, the email list is the best thing I've ever done. I love everyone on my list. And I think that that's why people enjoy it is I'm writing specifically to them. What I saw a lot of clients do that was a mistake is it was very much about them. Email was treated as a distribution channel for, you know, we have this event, we're selling this product. We need to let people know about this update. It's very, you know, me centric. And nobody cares. Like, that's the honest truth is that no one cares about you. I think you guys know that as copywriters, right? You have to shift it to the benefits about why anyone should care. And what I've tried to do with my email list is make sure I stay on topics that people care about and 
not make it about me. It's things that I hear in the community. It's things that I hear from people. It's observations. I want to make problems I have. Sometimes I send rants. That's true. But I do my best to mimic one-on-one communication. So if you get an email from me and it feels like I'm writing to you personally, it's because that is true. Like I go into it thinking about you. I think about one person and I write directly to them. And some days it's a different reader than another, but I'm always writing directly to them. And I value that. Like in my mind, marketing is really relationship building at scale. And if I can find a way to convey that like you and I have a relationship, I actually value your time. Because that's the most important asset anyone has. If you're going to take your time to read something, that's a privilege for me. And I need to be able to earn it. And so I don't ever publish anything half-ass, or at least that's not my intention. If it ends up being that way, you're welcome to criticize it. <laughs> but I, <laughs> I certainly work really hard to make sure like, if this is going out and someone is choosing you know, to be on their phone reading me instead of paying attention to their child or like the meeting that they're in or the subway ride they're on, like whatever it is that I'm taking attention away from, like I need to earn that. And I feel that every time I sit down to write an email to someone. So I keep that in mind the whole time. I really believe that there's a marketing juju that like what intention you go in writing something, it comes out on the other end and that your people can feel that. I definitely need to do that better, far less for sure. You do a good job, Rob. What are you talking about? (laughs) You're fine. Always room for improvement. Well, okay, Margo, I have one final question. What is the future of copywriting? It's a big question, I know. Yes. I think it's going to get stronger, to be honest. I mean, we're at this tipping point where I think we've saturated the market on like, buy my ebook to teach you how to publish ebooks and like launch. Like there's a lot of things that we're seeing disintegrate. Like I think Hillary's uh, article really hit the nail on the head that a lot of things that have worked aren't working. And we're probably going to see the pendulum swing the other direction when it comes to courses and product launches and sales pages. And a lot of things that relied on copy are working less. But I don't think that that speaks to any devaluation in copy. I think right now the internet is controlled by words. Until we have another way of searching that isn't text-based, it's going to be reliant on copy. And in what I've seen in the content marketing world is we've sort of saturated the clickbait market and people are actually hungry for quality pieces. So it's never been more important to be an effective communicator and a copywriter because that skill is going to be needed more than ever. I don't know what the applications of it will be, I think that there'll be more and more growth hacking happening. I think you'll see a lot more people wanting and recognizing the value of copy in ways that they didn't when I got started. Like there was a lot of educating that needed to happen versus now I think there's a lot of companies who understand like I need a copywriter because I get what conversion rates are and I understand why it's really important that when people come to my site, they know why, right? Like we sort of graduated to that next level. So I think there's going to be more and more opportunities for copywriters, but I do think in terms of the future of copywriting, that we're going to have to distinguish ourselves a lot louder from writers and from content creators, because those have actually been commoditized. And that is a problem. It's hard to talk about the future of copywriting without talking about the future of content. And right now, I mean, I got a lot of incoming requests of for me to write for outlets and publications and companies, and they never want to pay you any money. And until the value on that goes up, we're going to see crap writing. And so if you're a copywriter, that's a very different skill than, you know, writing listicles for a living. And I think that we're going to have to do a better job of communicating why that's different. And that is going to be recognized in the market more and more. 
it feels like to go back to some of the things you were saying earlier, the copy needs to be focused more on relationships and relationship building and less on selling the thing, right? It's creating real value and, and human interaction rather than, oh, here's another thing to read. Here's another thing that will move your career forward. I don't know that they're mutually exclusive, Rob. Like, I think that you can still, if you're selling the thing, it can, it should feel like I'm selling you a thing specific to you that can actually help your life. It shouldn't just be, I need you to click on this so I make a few more ad dollars and then I don't really care if you read the rest of it. I think those are very different. Does that make sense? I think that totally makes sense. And I think that's really what I'm saying is that the more human and the, the more the relationship becomes important in yes. whatever the thing is. So, yes. you know, a course that's just video of a skill, you know, maybe it's screen captures versus a course with, you know, coaching or some kind of a relationship. It feels like the humanness is becoming more important in all of our interactions online. Yes, Rob nailed it. It's a perfect note to end on because like, you guys, the money is in the relationship. If you take nothing else out of this, like that's what's got to come out of your marketing, especially through copy, also through design and strategy and all the other ways that you communicate it. But I'm a traditionalist and I think everything rests on the backbone of copy. And if your copy isn't conveying that this relationship matters and that I actually care about who's on the other end of this, then it's not going to convert, period. The relationship is the thing that matters. The perfect note to end on. (laughs) The best way to end this conversation. Margo, where can we find you? Where can our listeners find you online? I am at thatseemsimportant.com is my website. You can also tweet at me at Margo Aaron. I am very bad at Twitter, but I'm learning to get better. So if you guys want (laughs) to teach me, I'm open. I'm not sure that we're that much better, but (laughs) we're looking for you everywhere. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you, Margo. This has been incredible. And I'm just really glad and grateful that you're in the Copywriter Club and that now we're we're friends. So this is great. Yes. Win-win. This is awesome. (laughs) Thank you guys so much for having me. You've been listening to the Copywriter Club podcast with Kira Hug and Rob Marsh. Music for the show is a clip from Gravity by Whitest Boy Alive, available in iTunes. If you like what you've heard, you can help us spread the word by subscribing in iTunes and by leaving a review. For show notes, a full transcript, and links to our free Facebook community, visit thecopywriterclub.com. We'll see you next episode. Thank you.